This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington. I'm the host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. And since Fred is going to brag about his 10 books, I have 400 episodes on my other podcast. So just want to get some one-upmanship in there before we start. I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Well, the sad thing, of course, is that, you know, I can't get to 400 episodes without you, Jethro. So that's the beauty. We'll have it bounced up around a thousand for you. So well done, you. And for those of you who have heard this before, I am, in fact, Frederick Lane. I am an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of, as Jethro kindly pointed out, 10, that's 10 books, including most recently Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, ethical hacking. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing, and media professional training, and public advocacy. We are proud to announce that Buoyancy Digital is the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast series. Buoyancy Digital is a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos and was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in the digital media world since 1997 and has overseen $300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys 
across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and Bing-accredited brand and audience-safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, please reach out to Scott Rabinowitz at Scott R. Media on LinkedIn and buoyancydigital.com. Hey there, Jethro. Hello, Fred. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. It's a cybersecurity day here at the podcast. <laughs> it sure is. We had a great interview with someone else, Sam Bourgeois, that I hope everybody will check out. That is episode 67. You can get that at cybertraps.com slash 67 dot. Also, right now we're going to interview Ted Harrington, who's the number one best-selling author of Hackable, How to Do Application Security, and the executive partner at Independent Security Evaluators the company of ethical hackers famous for hacking cars, medical devices, web applications, and password managers. He's helped hundreds of companies fix tens of thousands of security vulnerabilities, including Google, Amazon, and Netflix. Ted has been featured in more than 100 media outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, and Forbes. His team found, founded and organizes IoT Village, an event whose hacking contest is a three-time DEF CON Black Badge winner, and he hosts the Tech Done Different podcast. To get help with security consulting and security assessments or to book Ted to keynote your next event, visit tedharrington.com. Ted, welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. We're excited to have you. I am pumped to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I am most concerned about the holes in password managers. So let's start there. How concerned should I be about that? That is a really good question. And... One that I'm going to give you maybe some counterintuitive advice, and it is that it is better to use a vulnerable password manager than to not use a password manager. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad and you said that. Excellent. <laughs> every, yeah, every guest we've had said, choose strong password, passwords, use a password manager. And I'm glad to hear you reiterating that, even though that it could be vulnerable. Yeah, here's the reality, right? The most important thing that we can all be doing when it comes to passwords, which is as a security professional, I'm bored to death of talking about passwords because it's like basics, right? It's the fundamentals, yet people still really struggle to do it because to do it right is as a human is actually almost impossible. If you think like the practical way that a human functions, we're not able to remember long, complex, and most importantly, unique passwords across different services. So that advice, use complex, long, unique passwords across services is unhelpful if you don't have a way to manage those. And so a password manager actually helps you manage them. And our research did discover that you could actually extract the secrets from password managers, even in locked mode. And that's a pretty significant problem, obviously, because you're trusting the proverbial keys to the all of the different kingdoms to it. But my personal approach to how you deal with that is there, there is a very effective technique and it's where it's called using a modifier. And this is gonna sound complex, but it's not. And the idea is simply that the password that is used in a site, think of it as having two pieces. It has, let's call it the like base password and then a modifier. The base password is what you save in the password manager. And then when the password manager populates the website, you remember the modifier, which can be like one, two, three letters, and it can be the same across all uh, passwords. And then you just manually enter that. So now the, pass the actual password 
is different than what's in the password manager, is unique across all the different services. And the only thing you have to remember is that very small modifier. And it makes it so that when a password manager gets popped, doesn't matter because the, the attackers don't actually get the password. That's a really great suggestion. Yeah. yeah. And I know you're sick of talking about it and we're sick of talking about it too, but it's something like you said that people are still not doing and you're still finding sticky notes on teachers' computers and grandparents' mm -hmm. computers. And my, some people very close to me use the same password for everything still, despite my yeah. best efforts. <laughs> In your book, Hackable, you talk about doing application security, which is a very narrow thing, but there are some broad themes that I think are really important. And one of those is the ability to think like an attacker. So can you talk us through how people should think like an attacker and not just people who are developing applications, but also normal everyday consumers? Totally. Yeah. And you actually, of you, you drew out a very important nuance of this book. I did intentionally write a book about a specific topic area. However, the principles, many of them are universal, but from purely a perspective of how do you best serve an audience you guys are authors, you know this, you can't write a book that's everything to everybody. It will be nothing to nobody. So if I just wrote a book about here are some security best practices, like no one would read that book, but going able to say, okay, people who have AppSec problems, here's how you deal with those problems. And then we can extract from that the more universal lessons. And so in that sense, yeah, many of the ideas are universal, including this one of what it means to think like a, a, an attacker. And let me first define what a hacker is. And then we can talk about how we think like one. Because when you think about the, the way that the mainstream media talks about any sort of security breach, think of any headline that you've read recently. It's always hackers this, hackers that. And what the media is getting at is they are making this correlation that hackers are bad people associated with some sort of evil doing or some sort of malicious outcome. But that's really not entirely true. Because really what a hacker is neither good nor bad. A hacker is a problem solver. A hacker is somebody who looks at the way that things are and says, can they be something else? Can they behave differently? Can it, instead of doing X, can it do Y? That's what a hacker is fundamentally. Now the fork in the road comes to motivation. And that's where someone who says, can I make the system behave differently than intended if the goal is to be malicious, that's an attacker. If they're trying to uh, obtain some sort of personal benefit at the expense of some other organization, that's an attacker. But if by contrast, they're trying to find these issues in order to make things better, in order to improve it, in order to drive progress, that's what the world, the corner of the world that I come from, that's what an ethical hacker is. And we sometimes, we sometimes laugh that you have to put this word ethical in front of hacker because a hacker is not good or bad. It's kind of like, I, I don't know, it's like a plumber, right? You wouldn't say ethical plumber. It's just plumber. And, but we have to say ethical hacker because there is this widespread misunderstanding. And so I'm okay with ethical hacker, meaning, hey, this is a good type. So now when we think about that, we've defined what a hacker is. How do we think like one? So to do that, I can... I have plenty of stories and maybe I'll, I'll tell some stories as we go. But first I will tell you the, like the two ways that we think about it. Uh, when I was writing the book, I was uh, spending a lot of time interviewing other security professionals, interviewing people who work at our company and people outside our company, of course, as well, just trying to 
understand the same ideas that I already understood, but from other perspectives. That's how you understand an idea better. And so during one of these um, sessions, I guess you could say, I took one of our, our top security analysts out to lunch and we're at this ramen place. And this was like when you could go to lunch with other humans and it was safe to do, which is great. I miss that. Good times. <laughs> Good times. <laughs> and so I remember I asked him, now, okay, I obviously know what the guy does. He works for me. I works for our company. But I said to him, nevertheless, I said, what do you do? Tell me what your job is. He's paused and he rests his chopsticks down in his like steaming bowl of ramen. And he says, Ted, my job is to think the bad thoughts and ask the hard questions. So now, of course, I immediately put my chopsticks down because I'm like, what an incredible answer. You have to tell me what the hell that means. And so he says, well, there's these two parts, right? I have to think the bad thoughts, which means I have to look at a system adopting that malicious mindset. Like, how would I break this thing if I wanted to? And then ask the hard questions is having applying empathy, but in a strategic and tactical way, meaning how do we put ourselves in the shoes of the person who built this system to say, what was that person thinking? What was the assumption that person made about how I would use this system? Because those flawed assumptions are where when paired with that sort of malicious mindset, that's where the exploits live when you combine those two things. And I thought that was such an amazing way to think about it. We have to think the bad thoughts and ask the hard questions. And that's why a profession like ours is uh, very difficult and in, in a lot of senses really rare because most people aren't wired to think that way. Most people don't walk down the street and be like, how can I cut that line? How can I not pay for this thing? How can I do this? And But ethical hackers, we are because we look at those things and we're like, the system's supposed to do X. Can I make it do Y? It, it, Ted, it's really interesting to listen to you talk because that motivation, that approach is the kind of thing, for instance, that Wozniak, for instance, to build a blue box to hack around with the phone tones, really trying to understand how things work. And to, I've done a fair amount of reading about the early days of hacking, and so much of it was just trying to understand how these systems worked. And now, of course, we've gotten into a world where so much of the information has economic value, that it's become a very rich target for people. Someone that we interviewed a while ago named Brandon Karp, who works for Naval Cybersecurity, does a lot of that same kind of stress analysis for obviously national security reasons. Again, trying to get into the minds of bad actors coming at the U.S., and imagining where the potential vulner vulnerabilities might be. So this seems to be something that resonates across the whole landscape of modern life. Yeah, absolutely. I can give you an example, a story of like how this plays out. So what does it mean? How do we apply that concept? And so this story that I'm going to tell isn't about attacking software or any computer system, but is really about Looking at a system, it's a social engineering story, which is, has to do with humans, but the principles are so directly applicable. And I think the story is really relatable to people outside of tech. And so I really like this story because I think that it, it, can, it conveys the ideas. So a few, a uh, couple years ago, I was going to this one bar here near my house in, in San Diego, and, and I had to go to this bar. And I can't remember, I think it was someone's birthday, but whatever the reason, it wasn't like go to a bar, we'll go to that one. Or it was like, this was the one we had to go to. And, but this one had a huge line 
And once you wait in the line, then you had to pay $20 cover charge to get in. And I didn't want to do either of those things. That sounded, that wasn't very fun. So this is where you apply that sort of like hacker mindset and say, how can I make the system behave differently? And so I went through the progression of what any hacker, good or bad, would go through. So the first thing that I did was I evaluated and assessed the system. And I recognized that, hey, there's an authorization model here, which basically says regular patrons, you go wait in that line and you pay $20 cover. But VIP patrons, you go over here, there's no line and you don't pay cover. But you have to be on the list. Now, I wasn't on the list. But I wanted to figure out a way to get on the list. So I now established my goal, which was to es escalate privileges from a normal patron to a VIP patron. So that's the second step. First step, I evaluated the system, understood how it worked. The second step was to set a goal, which was to escalate my privileges. And then the third step was to start probing the system to see how it might divulge information in order to help me get, my, get to my goal. So I walk right up to the VIP hostess and I said, hi, I'm on the list. Now, I was not on the list. So when she asked me what a name was, it, get, uh, my name wasn't going to help. And guess, like the likelihood that I guess a name that's right is near zero. So I wasn't going to actually give her an answer. So I did what's called issuing a specially crafted input. And this is where I issue, I send out information with the intent of getting the system to behave to help me. And so the specially crafted input was, well, I'm with the group. So I said this like vague leading statement that didn't actually answer her question, but didn't not answer it either. So she, so I said, oh, I'm with the group. She says, great, which group? Now, again, I'm not with a group. My name's on it. I don't know any. So like guessing isn't going to help. So again, specially crafted input. I said, I'm with the big group. With that, she looks down at her clipboard, flips through, and she says, oh, the Smith party. And I said, yes, I am with the Smith party. And with that, she opens the velvet rope, escorts me in, past the bouncer, past the cover charge, and into the bar. And I should note, I am an ethical hacker. Uh, I'm, I'm from the ethical hacking community, I should say. And so I'm more than made up for it with over-tipping everybody, bar tabs, food tabs. I just didn't want to wait in line. <laughs> but the principles are exactly the same. It's you uh, understand how the system works, you set your goal, you probe the system for assumptions. Like, for example, that if I could associate with a group I would be considered a VIP and then get to escalate privileges. And then going all the way to the last step, which was determine, can you exploit? Which was when I said, yes, I'm with the group. Is this exploitable? We found out it was when she opened the velvet rope. And that's really what thinking like a hacker is, right? Everybody, every single other, 100% of everyone else that night saw that line and went and stood in it. And but I thought like a hacker and didn't. And that's where I think this is really important because you may have saved time in this situation and saved money in this situation, or maybe you actually spent more money because Probably of all the more. tips. But a lot of people will think I just is to figure out how to do all this other stuff is going to take too long, but that's not how attackers think. They think, how can I break this system? How can I subvert it and get past it? And this is something that I did in school all the time. What's the least amount of work that I have to do? to get a good grade in the class. And yeah. so I'm never going to study unless I have to for to get a better grade. And so instead of doing regular work like everybody else, I would just figure out what was on the test 
and then focus on those parts. And I would ask specific questions of the professor or the teacher and say, what of this is most important? What do we have to understand? And they were willing to give that information freely. And so I never read the books or did the homework because it was all pointless and all that mattered. And some of those classes was the test and other classes, all that mattered was the homework. And so that was the only thing I did and never worried about the test because they weren't weighted as much. People don't typically think like that because they like to follow the rules or just do what they're supposed to and and don't put up a fuss. How does having that mindset to help people outside of these types of situations, how does it help them in life when they can think like a hacker? Aren't you a principal and you didn't do homework? Like, what are we teaching (laughs) our kids? Seriously. (laughs) (laughs) No, I actually, I'm giving you, uh, I'm giving you a hard time, but I think what you did is exactly what students should do, which is determine what are the rules of the game. And this whole notion of everything in life is fair. First of all, it's not true. Life is not fair. And people feel like if I just work hard, put my head down, play by the rules, I'm going to, I'm going to get ahead. And yeah, you, you might get moderately ahead, but the people who really succeed are the ones who see not the way the world is, but the way that it could be. And that's why entrepreneurs, by and large, are so rewarded financially and just in terms of fulfillment in their life because they don't see the way the world is. They're like, let me create this other thing. And so I think that one of the the best parts of the idea of what it means to think like a hacker is it's really about independent thinking. And it's really about not just following a herd. And there's some things where following a herd makes a lot of sense. I don't know, investing in an index fund. That makes a lot of sense. Let's go with the herd because we'll just buy the whole stock market. That's actually a better long-term financial strategy than buying individual stocks. But when it comes to other, pretty much everything else in life where you're talking about how do I as an individual level up my skills? How do I take my company to the next level? How do I make this nonprofit perform better? You have to realize there's constraints all around us. And those constraints are what actually provide opportunity for us to achieve greater heights. And that's to me, I think the greatest part of having this independent mindset. And it's not for everybody. I, I'll definitely be the first to say that. It's actually, it's not for most people because once you unplug from the matrix, there's no going back. You don't like, you'll never look at a form that you have to fill out for some like government, whatever. You will never look at it because you'll fill stuff out and be like, why do I have to do this? I'm doing this because I'm told to do it, but why do I have, there's no real, this is dumb. It's one of the frustrations that you wind up living with the rest of your life once you unplug from the matrix. It's always good to have a Neo reference on our podcast. So I appreciate (laughs) that. But Ted, if you don't mind, let's turn this a little bit to schools, right? Because I think that there's this fascinating relationship between Neo hackers, young kids who are trying to figure out how all of this stuff works and some of the legitimate security issues that schools have. So there's a couple of different ways you can approach this question for us. Number one, what do schools need to do to protect themselves from experimenting kids? And secondly, does it make sense for someone like Jethro to try to find the aspiring hackers in his student body to stress test the school? Oh, I like both of those questions a lot. I pity schools, to be honest with you, because kids are curious and inherently are explorers. They're uh, problem solvers. Some of them are anarchists. That's the definition right there of small group hacker. And they are going to want to you know, poke around at 
what's going on in the, their immediate environment, which is school. Now, I also do believe that most children are not malicious. And so I think that what we should probably be doing, and I'm not, full disclosure, I'm not an educator. I like, I don't know principles of young child development. So whatever I say, you might be like, we're going to edit this part out because Ted has no idea what he's talking about. But my personal advocacy would be rather than trying to stifle or thwart that type of creative exploration in students, we should actually embrace it and foster it and encourage it. Because then there's a few reasons I believe that. So number one is that most people and children are, of course, part of this, but most humans and the human race don't realize that there is a profession that is this. And so now think about how many capable security professionals probably never become security professionals because they just didn't know. They're like, I don't know, I guess you like you become a lawyer or a doctor or a fireman or a list your hundred most common professions. Most people don't know that this exists. The second is that most people feel that there is this very logical progression you follow. Go to middle school, you go to high school, you go to college, you get a job, you get promoted. It's like, there's other paths too. And, and some students don't really fit well into that mold and struggle academically, but thrive in these types of communities. Some of the best ethical hackers we've ever worked with don't even have college degrees. And it's an incredibly educated field. But as far as encouraging them to hack uh, school systems, you'd want to just make sure that was a controlled experiment and make sure that it wasn't happening on what's called production systems. Like you wouldn't want them actually deleting the grades database or in if it's like private school, you want them deleting like the donor database or anything like that. And yeah, you'd want to have it controlled, but I think having it having clubs, encouraging it, positively reinforcing students who are wanting to do this. It's incredible because I look at my own journey and I, when I talk to students, they're like, they're blown away when they hear this fact that I only entered security about 10 years ago. Before that, I like understood tech to a certain extent, but I wasn't a security professional. And then fast forward to today, and I wrote the number one best-selling book on this particular topic. And I run one of the most elite, you know, ethical hacking groups in the world. And I get to run this hacking contest. That's this like amazing community event. And think about that. I was like in my mid twenties at the time when I started. Now imagine a student who's in like ninth grade. That kid's got a decade on me and think how much more capable that kid will be when he's my age or that girl will be when she's my age. And for us to stifle that just because like hacking seems bad, question mark, would be crazy to do that. Yeah, this is a, a piece that even though you're not a child development expert, you definitely hit the nail on the head that we should be encouraging students to pursue these things that they're interested in. And I, my, my theory is that kids go to the dark side of hacking, doing it for bad reasons, because they've been told that they are bad if they do it for so long in school with their parents and other situations as they're growing up and learning. And that if we actually encouraged it and fostered it, it would be a lot easier to teach them good things and to teach them how to do it right and for ethical purposes. So can you talk a little bit about that piece of how do you help someone stay on the right path and not go over to the dark side? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And when we think about just like human psyche, there's so many elements to the question of ethics in that. But my philosophy is that 
I think that most humans are inherently wired to be moral. We inherently know the difference between good and bad. You know, with the except there are obviously people don't like the definition of a sociopath is that they don't, or if they know they don't care. But those are the exception, not the rule. I think most people know the difference between right and wrong. But what's really interesting to note is that we think of a lot of the malicious uh, actors out there, especially originating from countries with that are a little more maybe war torn or impoverished and don't have the same maybe opportunities as exist in America or uh, Western Europe, stuff like that. A lot of them, they're doing this not because they're evil, but because this is literally a profession. They have a friend, they have a family to support, they need income. And when there's not really an economy where they happen to live, like this is a way they can do it. And that's not me justifying it, but just more noting that there are conditions that exist around us that you know drive these types of things. But I think that if we can, so if we start from the foundation that people are inherently good and we show them that this can be a really rewarding career. Like I think about the, there's two words really that define what security is. And those two words are be better. It's as simple as that's what security is about. You're never done. There's no finish line for security. The only question is, are you better today than you were yesterday? And will you be better tomorrow than you are today? And I think that inherently most humans are wired to be like that. Now, some people are maybe a little more passive and and content to just be like, look, I don't need to be a better version of myself. But even those people, I think, would prefer to be at least stay moral. And once people realize that, okay, I can have a profession that's rewarding, both both in terms of personal fulfillment, but also lucrative. I can very well, security is a very well compensated career path. And- not go to jail. Like when you can have that on one side or on the other side, yeah, maybe you can, you might be able to pull off some great big heist and make a huge amount of money, but then you're living on the lamb and you might go to jail for a long time. You might have everything taken away. And personally, I wouldn't trade. I wouldn't want that anxiety, like living in the back of my mind while also I'm making things worse, not making things better. So the short answer to a really good question, I think is if we start from the, the foundation that all people are good, We show them a way that they can continue to improve themselves and improve the world around them while achieving, you know, financial and personal fulfillment success. It's a no brainer for most humans. Ted, let me throw this at you, though, as a little bit of a curveball, because I think that I generally share your optimism regarding the innate decency of people. But I think that some of the work and some of the research that I've been doing for a book called The Rise of the Digital Mob and the impact of digital communication technology and social media on how we interact raises the concern that if people, if the ability to be our lesser selves is too easy, that sometimes we give in to those impulses. And specifically with reference to your world and the expertise that you have, one of the things I find really concerning is the automation of hacking techniques that makes it possible for people without the skills, which sort of implies moral choices as you develop them. Mm-hmm. But people without those skills are now able to deploy hacking technologies, for instance, DDoS and things like that, without really knowing what they're doing and they just want to have fun. And so I'm, I think that's my real concern is that we, with the technology and so forth that we have, are making it too easy for people to 
not be moral. I don't know who the we is that you're referring to, but I wouldn't Fair take point. guilt on with that because who's creating that is the people that are already askew morally. So you weren't going to change their mind anyway. That's why security as a field, as a profession matters because it we're in a never ending battle. And now the point that you just brought up, I'm a little weird, I think, in the way I view stuff like that, in that as the, this intersection of being an entrepreneur and being a security professional, I see that as I see the innovation in that. And I find that really interesting because think about what's happening. That's really the it's the democratization. I can never say that word, but I think we know what word I just messed up. This elite skill, right? It's because what happens is like this waterfall. You've got these very skilled people. They go, they develop an attack technique, and then they turn around and they make it available to people with lesser skill. And from purely like a macroeconomics perspective, that is a market force in play. And it just happens to be a bad thing. But there's, that's no, we're not going to stop that. But there's, I don't know, how are we going to make evil people stop being evil? We wouldn't have superhero movies anymore. So I guess that, that would be a downside too. But that's why the defense side matters so much because this is a relentless arms race and that kind of stuff's going to constantly happen. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I want to address one other aspect of this about it being an arms race is that governments are buying exploits and ways to do things to infiltrate other systems. And what you're doing is turning this stuff over to uh, companies so that they can fix it. How do we balance that? And how do we, what do we do in that situation um, with governments paying high ticket prices for these kind of exploits? Yeah. The, what you're referring to is what's called, they're called zero days, zero day vulnerabilities, or, or sometimes called O days. And it, the term comes from because the defender has literally zero days to fix it before it's exploitable. And so zero days are definitely the, like, the thing that brings the world down. And so what is the defense against zero days? The defense against zero days is the security research community. And so at a company like ours, there, there's sort of two ways we deploy our time. We either are paid, like a company will hire us and say, here's a system, we're going to pay you, tell us the results, and we'll, this stays confidential between us. Or we do research where we're not paid, and oftentimes the company doesn't even know that this is happening, or if they do know, they don't want anything to do with it. And then we give, it, we give them the findings, and then we go through a process called responsible disclosure, where we give them... Uh, a timeline to fix it. And then eventually we go and talk about it at security conferences and stuff like that. And so I, I said the security research community, which specifically refers to the latter, but it does, I, mean, I am actually referring to both, whether you're, because it doesn't matter whether you're paid or not paid. But the point is finding these flaws is what really matters. So uh, I could tell you a story that I think really powerfully illustrates this, these two points that vulnerabilities exist and attackers exploit them. And this is one of the like most bonkers stories. I've been involved with a lot of bonkers stories, and this one is awesome. So we were looking at Ethereum wallets, which is a cryptocurrency. Most people are probably familiar with cryptocurrencies popping off right now. And we were looking at these Ethereum wallets. And what keeps a cryptocurrency wallet secure, one of the mechanisms is, is this idea that's called statistical improbability. And that's a fancy way to say that you can't guess it. Statistical improbability means that, no, statistically speaking, you can't guess it. And it's like the metaphor is, uh, Jethro, you go to a beach, you bend over, you pick up a grain of sand, and you throw it back. 
And then Fred, the next day, you go back to the same beach and you pick up a grain of sand. What's the likelihood it's the same grain of sand, right? It's like pretty much impossible that it will be the exact same one. And then you multiply that by every beach on earth and then multiply that by a gazillion earths. And that gives you a sense of what statistical improbability means. And essentially it means that someone can't guess the private key that secures a cryptocurrency wallet. But we did. And we published this research that showed we actually were able to successfully predict the private key of these Ethereum wallets that we were was in the scope of our research 732 times. That's like Fred going to Jethro's beach 732 times. I mean, like, got it. Got the same grain of sand. It shouldn't happen once, let alone hundreds of times. I have really good eyesight. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, that looks like that a man with glasses. He, like that one. Good one. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that was a problem. And because cryptocurrency wallets leverage a blockchain, you can see all the transactions. And so we, we wanted to know how much money are we talking about that's you know, at risk here? And so we're able to actually go look at the blockchain and see all the transactions. And it turns out it was about 54 million US dollars at the time was in these 732 vulnerable wallets. And Ethereum is worth, I think, like 20 times now what it was at, the t- at that moment. So this is an entire country's GDP is what we're talking about here. And so then, of course, the next question we ask is we start thinking about $54 million is in vulnerable wallets. That's like cash is just sitting on the sidewalk. Someone's going to steal it eventually. And someone did. It turns out every single unit of currency had been all funneled to a single destination wallet. And we came to refer to this person, this unknown person or group as the blockchain bandit. And the last thing that we did was we wanted to see how quickly does a vulnerable wallet get looted? There's a cryptocurrency wallet's rely on anonymity, or at least at the time they did. And so it's not like we could call somebody and ask them. So what we did was we sent a dollar's worth of our own Ethereum into one of those vulnerable wallets, and it was almost instant. That money was gone. And it's a pretty pretty wild story. It's kind of a thief goes to rob a house and there's someone robbing the house already in there. And you're like, oh, hey, what's up, man? And we came across this active hacking campaign that had stolen huge amounts of money and it's a compelling story because it, it reveals that fact that humans build systems, humans are flawed, thus systems are flawed, and, and attackers will exploit them. And so this comes all the way back to the original question, what do we do about ODES? And the critical part, and this is going to sound straightforward, but it's, I assure you it is not because of the way people behave. We have to accept that the vulnerabilities exist, and then we have to go find them. And that sounds obvious, right? No, there's a problem. Solve the problem. But companies all day long are trying to either intentionally or just through ignorance or even negligence are trying to think that the vulnerabilities don't exist. And they're trying to minimize how much they spend in order to solve those problems. And though that combination of this sort of ostrich effect, like I'm going to stick my head in the sand, that leads to these issues existing for way too long. And so that's how I think we should be thinking about Odes is the security research community and the ethical hacking community being properly mobilized to help companies and help organizations solve these problems. Ted, that um, is amazing stuff. <laughs> I mean, what I want to know, and our, our closeout question, do you know whose 732 wallets those were? 
or is that information just not available? I mean, because somebody no. lost a huge chunk of money. Yeah, well, I, I think it was probably 732 people lost money. I doubt it was one person who had multiple wallets. Maybe yeah. there was some duplicates in there. But yeah, that's the interesting thing. There's This is a little behind the scenes to this story. That story I told in the book, but I didn't tell this part, which was once we discovered this problem, one of the things that a security researcher goes through is I alluded to before this idea of responsible disclosure. And essentially the idea is you report the issue to the afflicted organization so that they can fix it. So that then you can, when you talk about it, they've had a chance uh, to fix it. Because you don't want to just give away the attack blueprint to the bad guys. That's, that's, that would be counterproductive to the point. Mm-hmm. The, this is different now because cryptocurrency is becoming more mainstream. And so there's all these know your customer things going in place. And you have to verify identity on most of the exchanges now. But at the time, and for all of the infancy of cryptocurrency, the whole point was anonymity. That was the whole point. Like you, No one knew whose money this was. And so it was, there was no way to contact somebody and wallets don't have a messaging feature. We couldn't send a message to somebody. So actual things that went through our head, which were immediately dismissed, but we're like, should we, should we go and take the vulnerable money and then donate it to charity? Because at least that way a bad guy doesn't get it. And (laughs) we asked our lawyer about it. We're like, okay, here's a bad idea. But, and our lawyer was like, never even think that thought again. I will take you to jail myself if you think. So it was like, here's a bad idea. Tell us exactly how bad it is. (laughs) Pretty much. But yeah, you can't even like, we could tell law enforcement if we wanted, we could tell FBI, we could tell whoever, but the nature of cryptocurrency, one of the other advantages to it is it's decentralized. So there's no, it's a borderless issue, right? There's no sovereignty. There's no nation that can be like, all right, I'll go solve this problem. So it's like, the best thing we could do was put money in. There's no legal issue to giving money to somebody. Uh, so we put money in to see how it got looted, but that was that's as far as we could take it. And I am positive that those victims know they have been victimized. You would know if your money was stolen. Amazing okay. stuff, Ted. It really is. I, I, It is all just a brave new world. And it's great that there are people like yourself out there trying to help us navigate that. Jethro, any last questions? No, I, no questions. Just want to say thank you to you, Ted, for being here. I want to remind people to go to tedharrington.com and the book is called Hackable, How to Do Application Security. And even if you're not doing application development, it's still, I think the principles can be applied to other things as well. So thank you for being here, Ted. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hope this helped people and don't be shy if this triggered questions for people. TedHarrington.com, all my contact info is there. I'm very responsive on social media and by email. So however I can help you, let me help you. Oh, that's terrific, Ted. And it was great of you to remind us that unfortunately, it is a not uncommon corporate attitude that ignorance is bliss. Um, so hopefully people will get past this. We did have this pop up in another podcast and Jethro, I did look it up and it is in Latin, ignorantia sit beatitudo, ignorance is bliss. So now I've resolved that little (laughs) annoyance. Anyway, that wraps up this episode of the Cyber Traps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, cryptocurrency, which will be a growing topic, I think, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. 
You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you will share the show with your friends and reach out to us if you have questions, topic suggestions, or guest suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones, Fred is at Cybertraps, and Ted is at Security Ted. If you're still listening, you must have loved this episode like we did. If, please leave us a five-star rating and review, and we look forward to seeing you on our live show on Monday. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.